This episode of the Organic BC podcast was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Hello, this is the Organic BC podcast and I'm Jordan Marr. This episode, a conversation with Anna Helmer of Helmer's Organic Farm. Hello, my name is Anna Helmer and I'm a farmer in Pemberton, British Columbia. I grow organic potatoes and other root crops and my farming partners are my parents and we're on a farm that's been in the family for, uh, I guess I'm the fifth generation now. I also write a monthly column for Country Life in BC and I've made small attempts to do a podcast also called The Farm Story. And I write for our provincial organic organization as well in their uh, quarterly newsletter. This conversation is meant to be a companion to a video that Organic BC produced about Halmer's Organic Farm for its upcoming Organic Innovations series. The video will take you on a virtual tour of the Halmer Farm and showcases their dedication to low inputs, long rotations, and heavy cover cropping. That video will be released on the World Wide Web in early March, and a public screening of the video will take place in Pemberton in the third week of March, and Anna and Doug plan to be there to participate in a Q&A about their farm. To learn more about the screening, head to organicbc.org events. All right, as for this podcast, using organic and biodynamic practices, the Helmers produce 15 varieties of beautiful potatoes that they have sold at farmers markets in BC's lower mainland for decades. And Anna joined me on the phone to tell me all about the farm. And she had a lot of interesting things to say, so I've divided our conversation into two parts. In this episode, we'll hear about the history of the farm, how the Helmers market their potatoes, and Anna will take us through a season of production on the farm. In the next episode, we'll go into more detail about the five-year rotation that the Helmers use to produce their potatoes and how this rotation allows them to farm more or less without any off-farm soil inputs. We'll also cover a number of other topics that burn on the mind of a modern organic potato whisperer like Anna. Okay, that's about all I need to say. Here is part one of my conversation with Anna Helmer. Anna Helmer, thanks so much for joining me on the Organic BC podcast. Oh, Jordan, thanks for thanks for inviting me. And I want to frame this by saying that uh, you and your dad participated in another project of Organic BC over this last few months, which was uh, an organic field day video, kind of a profile on your farm with a focus on your the, some of the organic techniques you use on your farm. And so I've been asked to make a few episodes, set a few episodes aside to, to, to go more in depth with a few, two or three of the participants in those organic field day videos. But I think we just need to start by kind of creating some context for your farm. Where, how did the farm start? Can you, can you take us back? Yeah, um, the farm's been in my family for a long time. It was my great, great aunt that bought the land initially and it was purely land speculation. They thought the railway was going to go by. But in fact, the railway took a really hard right a few miles away. I don't know what she did to the railway, but they didn't go by her place. And then she didn't really want anything more to do with it, but my great-grandfather did. And he came up, he was a newspaper editor in Vancouver, and he got quite sick with the Spanish flu and came up and was never sick again a day in his life and lived to 105 growing potatoes. So that was the beginning of the potatoes on the farm. 
And that was, and that was and like then, how, what, what, what era can you, can you give us a rough kind of period? Well, he, yeah, he was up in the twenties in Pemberton. And at that time it was pretty, pretty tough existence. Like it flooded frequently, like twice a year, it would flood in the spring and flood in the fall. And of course the heat and the flies and the, I don't know, it was a tough life, I think. And my grandma, his daughter who was born there, didn't want it at all, so left. And every generation in the family has either been born in Pemberton and left forever, or born in Vancouver and come back to Pemberton <laughs> okay. forever. <laughs> so does that apply to your? Does that apply to your dad? Was he was 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 your grandmother in Vancouver and was your dad born there? That's right. Yeah, dad was born in Vancouver and um, had a whole life and career in Vancouver, and then. In the 80s, um, so I was young, 10 or so, um, and I have two younger sisters. Mom and dad decided that they, we were growing up in Vancouver, and they decided it was way too soft, and they wanted to toughen us up or something. I don't know. And so grandpa gave dad the keys to the chicken coop, literally is what he built up there, was a chicken coop. Um, Never put chickens in it. And that uh, said, you know, said to dad, go on, go up and use the place. It's just sitting there. So it was mostly forested. It was mo- in Pemberton. If you don't farm your fields, they just they just turn into a scrub alder cottonwood jungle. Mm. So that's basically what it was. And um, we went up there, and all five of us squeezed into the chicken coop. And dad built triple decker bunks, and we started picking away at the clearing. And at that time, actually, Cottonwood was getting this amazing price for toilet paper. So we traded logging for the logs for the clearing um, for a local logging outfit. And they cleared the whole place, and uh, we had fields. And so on weekends and holidays, we started farming. And Dad pretty much ran the farm off the side of his desk. He was a commodities trader in Vancouver. Mm. And... And we, I think the first actual cash crop was carrots. Um, and mom discovered this like dear love of growing things and then selling them for money. <laughs> and also that she was quite good at it. And it, it just sort of sparked a, a latent passion in the both of them. And they, they were always organic. They never, they never considered anything else. Um, they both read Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's work, and they just, they were never going to do anything but organic farming. And of course, that was sort of before or during uh, when it was sort of developing in BC. And uh, they wanted to grow potatoes, which is somewhat problematic in Pemberton because it's a it's a sea potato control area, meaning that the growing of commercial potatoes is very controlled. Um, because they're protecting this virus-free status that the valley has. We're very unusual in North America to have a growing area that just doesn't have all these troubles that potatoes are susceptible to, like Colorado potato beetle, for example. We don't, we just don't have that. And uh, so they had to sort of sweet-talk the seed potato growers into letting them grow potatoes. And it was tough. They were... They had to sign things that if there were diseases, if we did get aphids, for example, this 
which is the vector for disease, vector for virus. Basically, the conventional farmers could just come onto our land and then spray our crop and kill the whole thing. And I'm like, wow, like it was kind of um, medieval or something. I don't mm-hmm. know what the word is. But anyway, in the event, we were inspected by the same people there. The CFIA inspects every field. And we never even had aphids, like just didn't have aphids. I think the ladybugs and the other, everything just sort of took care of itself. And the first, the first field of commercial potatoes was right beside the road, which is very brave of mom and dad. <laughs> and it grew beautifully. We have a picture of it. It was just like this huge, lush, like plants up to the waist. We've never had a better crop. <laughs> sort of ironic. And it just totally settled their hash. Those, those conventional farmers and then we worked for them like we were we were willing to sort of put up with them and we needed to work for them in the winter because we needed to make money and uh and now we're we're all friends it's all fine but we definitely went through a mom and dad definitely went through quite a a tough phase there okay that, that that's great but so do you, are there any other key points of the evolution that you want to talk about as you kind of take us through the the 90s and into the aughts and then further on toward today? Yeah, well, the, I, I came back to the farm in 99. And I think that's, that's when it really, that's when it took another growth jump. Because um, then dad was able to stay home from markets and farm and I took over the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, and that was a big change of life for me. Obviously, I'd been working in the city um, total workaholic and just it was just nuts and mom and dad had been doing a lot of markets in Vancouver and one day they came I was working at uh, Capers I was the food service manager at the Capers and uh, they came to see me and they just looked like they looked awful they just looked so tired they just looked so worn out um, and they looked like how I felt and I just Suddenly, it suddenly dawned on me, like, oh my gosh, I should be, I should go be a workaholic for them. They clearly need, they need help. They need me. And so I announced to them that I was coming back to the farm. I, I think I asked them if that would be okay, but I don't actually remember doing that. <laughs> so I just waltzed back up there and I had so much to say about what they were doing and how they were doing it. And I, I really did have a lot of experience in selling food because that's what I've been doing in Vancouver but really all I brought to the farm was like inventory control sheets and stock and order sheets for markets that's that's the skill I brought to the farm <laughs> well it sounds <laughs> and, like tight, tightening thing tight, tightening the marketing up a little bit getting a little more organized yeah yeah I think it was it was helpful but I also ventured to have a lot to say about just about everything else so it took a while to settle down and realize that I was going to be doing a lot of learning. That's when I learned about our cover crop program and how we grow and what we grow and what our sort of vision is and all the, all the stuff. Well, I, just... I think we can get, go backwards again, if you want to fill in some details, but, <laughs> but on the subject of how you grow and what you grow, I want to ask you, can you give us an, an overview of what you grow and how you sell it? Yeah, we grow, um, so we have a, I think the key features of our farm are, that I learned <laughs> are that we have a five-year rotation. So fields don't see potatoes 
um, year after year. They come back every five years to that field. And in the intervening years, it's a pretty intensive program of cover cropping. So we, early on, I think probably around the mid-90s, Dad um, figured out a forage mix that he would plant between potatoes, and that was uh, its mix of clover and timothy and um, fall rye and orchard grass, and or sorry, perennial rye, not fall rye. And so he would, they'd grow their potatoes, and then they'd put this cover crop down, and then they would they would mow it um, with these ancient mowers. Like it's, a, I wrote it down. This is a key piece of equipment, <laughs> and they're these crop choppers literally from the 50s that we collect and take the augers out and the blowers off and all that sort of thing and they just leave the chopping part and they chop the grass and clover everything into really small pieces and just drop it on the field so we're just creating organic matter over five years as much organic matter as we can and then we plow that in and plant the potatoes and then over the years we've added a few different things so now we do fall rye often after the crop um, we use mustard uh, to combat wireworm. We use buckwheat if we need a really big organic matter boost. Um, and uh, we've played a lot. One of Dad's um, characteristics is that he's a perfectionist, and he's always seeking the perfect, the perfect cover crop set, the perfect potato set, the perfect everything, and he just strives for it. And he's 82 now, and you'd think he'd, you know, think about, I don't know, most people would retire at 82. Like most 82-year-olds I know are not trying to perfect their cover crop game. And he is at it. Right now, I bet you, he's thinking about what he's going to do on field 3A that won't see potatoes for like four years. And he's like pondering that field right (laughs) this second, I bet you. So... And we, so it's about seven acres every year of potatoes, and we grow between 12 and 15 varieties, which is kind of between 11 and 14 varieties too many. We could probably just grow the sequinda, and it would be fine, but it wouldn't be fine. You don't want to just grow one variety of potatoes. And we've branched into seed potatoes, commercial seed potatoes, because that's a natural fit for Pemberton. And then we also have a fairly... It seems large when we're digging it, fairly big carrot crop, but it's probably only about half an acre, and beets and parsnips and garlic, and sometimes celeriac if we're in a good mood. And, um, yeah, that's kind of the extent of it. Okay, and I, I want I have a bunch of questions about your production that we're going to move into in fairly mm-hmm. short order, but I still want to know, I just want to know how are you, how are you marketing all of this and, and just maybe kind of maybe highlight the, the, the most innovative or, or successful aspects of your marketing or any insights you've made? Well, the farmer's markets in Vancouver, we started going when they started. So in the 90s, mom and dad would come down and sell their potatoes. <clears throat> and we've been able to sort of grow as those markets have grown. So, you know, the first few years would be a couple, you know, a couple of hundred customers that would come to those markets. It was quite a new thing, farmer's markets. And then 
as they've grown, we've come along. So now we go to those Vancouver markets and there's, you know, 6,000 people or something go by the stall. And we're pretty thrilled if we can get 10% of them in. Mm -hmm. So that's what's built the farm. You know, 90% has been through the farmer's markets in Vancouver. So that's a lot of potatoes and carrots and beets and such, mostly potatoes. And you're you're moving, like you say, 90% through through the farmers yeah. I would say over the course of the the you know the last 20 years that's about right maybe 80 but it's very high and have you um, seen you have the benefit clearly of of a long-standing relationship with many customers I mean you're, you've probably started marketing mm-hmm. to the original customers children in some cases yep. but like have you have you has has that long-standing kind of relationship um, kind of hedged against increasing competition from other farmers has there been a lot of competition are are potatoes more common now at the farmers markets than they used to be oh yeah so that's what's happening in the last couple of years is i'm trying to get us away from markets so it's quite a it's been quite a shock for dad for example that i don't want to do these markets that just bring in all the money because like every mixed vegetable grower now has a tray of potatoes out there Mm -hmm. (laughs) and more and I'm selling them the seed (laughs) to do it so it's um we've kind of created a problem and part of the problem too is that going to markets although it's very you know it's good and it's built the farm it's really tiring and I don't really have a like dad was lucky I came along and took it on and I don't have that person coming up behind me yet like the kids in our family are between two years and 15 years old and they're just not they can't drive yet Mm. they're not allowed to drive to Vancouver and so I just don't have that person coming along that's gonna take it on and it's just it's just been getting to be a bit much going to you know, these wonderful markets, Saturday and Sunday, but all of Friday is spent getting ready for them. And all of Monday is spent trying to clean it all up. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is farming and there's nothing else. So what is the greater motivation to diversify or shift away? Is it, is it the competition? And as you say, you're meanwhile, like literally selling the seed potatoes to your competitors that are bringing more potatoes. Uh Is it, is it more the competition or is it more that intensity of schedule that comes with, that comes with direct marketing at farmer's markets? Yeah. Well, I definitely want to spend more time on the farm. I think that's my main motivation to change things up. So how, how have you been shifting or how do you intend to shift? Cause presumably you're going to keep growing those seven acres of crops every year. So how yeah. is, how is the marketing been shifting or going to shift? Yeah. The marketing has been shifting by, uh, we're not going to our summer markets anymore. So the Trout Lake and Kitsilano markets are off for us for now. Um, so we're just shifting the focus of sales from sort of July to December. We're shifting it to, uh, November to March, say. So it's um, it does mean that we, you know, get to October and we've got a lot of potatoes in storage that haven't been sold that we normally that normally would have been sold by now. So it, that is a bit of pressure. But we've got um, a farm stand at the end of the driveway. We've got an online store now for fresh potatoes and seed potatoes. And we've got the winter markets in Vancouver that we go to. 
um, which have been wonderful this year, I feel like, by not going in in the summer and all the other farmers are busily selling all those potatoes um, and hopefully selling out, then we swan in in November and there seems to be some pent-up demand um, that we're hooking into. And then we also run events on our farm sometimes. Like we had a we had an open farm yesterday, and we had we invited some other vendors. I think we had ten other vendors, and we had a market out at the farm stand, and it was super fun. And tons of local people came. So okay, let's we're gonna probably come back to marketing here and there when we talk about production. But let's talk about potato production. With with apologies to the carrots and the beets. And- Gosh, I feel so fancy when Matt plays me into a promotional break. Anyway, hi everyone, cutting in real quick with some important information for you. It is early February as I record this, and over the next six weeks, there will be a number of events that Organic BC wants you to know about. There are some regional gatherings around the province, as well as some online ones, and all the information you need can be found at organicbc.org events. At this point, we have confirmed in-person gatherings for the Okanagan, Vancouver Island, the Chilcotin, and the Lower Mainland. I think the Kootenai one already happened. Organicbc.org events. Okay, back to my conversation with Anna Helmer. So, okay, let's, we're going to probably come back to marketing here and there when we talk about production, but let's talk about potato production with, with apologies to the carrots and the beets and the garlic and the celeriac. <laughs> I, I think we're, we're mostly going to ignore those, those noble crops and, mm-hmm. and focus on all these potatoes. As we will learn in a, in a few minutes, you have this long rotation that culminates the year before a potato crop. If I understand correct, you, you, you do a low to no-till planting of mustard and or buckwheat into your forage mixture because you want to try and take care of wireworms that might have developed during the three years mm-hmm. that that forage mixture is in place. So we're going to talk more about that later, Anna. But so we, I, I guess I want to come to the end of this season before the, the a given part of the rotation becomes potatoes, right? So you've grown, let's say, a buckwheat crop. Um, I want to know if you're doing what prep you're doing toward the end of that season ahead of potato planting the next spring. Yeah, okay, so next year we'll be planting potatoes in this field. So that field ideally would have been rotivated just once before, like in the fall here. Normally we would rotivate and maybe spade. We use a spader. It's, it's like a series of shovels. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's like you would do in the garden. You dig up with a shovel. This is doing the same thing. And I think that feels it doesn't kill as many earthworms, but... I, I think that's less less that's pulverization, right? Compared to say, say yeah, yeah, okay. It's it's ideally just like shoveling it over, like you would in the garden. Mm-hmm. So, and then, so I'm going to work backwards here. Is that a good way to do it? I guess that's a good way to do it. Yeah, we've done the the rotivation spading, and then that's going to be ready in the spring, like in May. If we've done it right, it won't require very much cultivation before it's ready for potatoes. So you've you've done you've you've worked some soil. 
at the end of the fourth year, the fit, you're going back to potatoes the next spring. I, in an ideal situation, you have done some soil work that previous fall. We're now in the spring. And then can you take us from there? Like, yeah. just take us through this potato season? Yeah. Okay. So um, we've done our ideal cultivation in the fall. So we're waiting for the ground to warm up a bit now. Um, 12 degrees is sort of the scientific target that you're looking for. Um, but we use a different scientific target and that's to think about if we were potatoes, would you want to get in the ground right now? And sometimes you answer yes to that question and that's the time to plant. And so we don't always cut our seed in half, but if it's too big, then we do have to sit there and, and seed cut. And we just start planting. We do have a two row planter. Well, I guess I'll back up a little bit there. The cultivation requirement, as I said, is, is pretty dependent on the weather. If in an ideal situation, we'd probably do a, um, a disking. Uh, the first pass would be with a, a disc and probably double disc. So we would disc and then you just move over three feet, basically half of it and go back again over and over. And then that would probably be pretty close to ready. We'd probably power harrow. Um, we like the power harrow because it stirs rather than it, it, the tines are vertical on a power harrow versus on a rotavator where they're spinning around horizontally. Um, we're not trying to pulverize the soil. We, we don't want a powdery tilt or mm. anything like that. Um, it's sort of a, it's always a struggle. Like it's nice to have a powdery tilt. Like it's such a smooth planting sort of experience, but you know, it's not that good for the soil. And um, so we like to leave, you know, chunks of organic matter, but not chunks of clay. You know, we're just striving for friction there again. <laughs> um, but generally we're happy when the, when there's no bottom, like I don't like a plow pan under there. And um, I can still see bits of green from the chopped up cover crop. We have done times where we've planted fall rye in the fall. So we've done that rotivate and then planted fall rye into that. So if you let that go too long, it's really hard to break down the rye. So mm -hmm. we stop doing that just because we don't know what the springs are going to look like. Mm -hmm. If they're too wet, then you're just sitting there watching the fall watching rye, rye grow into yeah. look like a forest of <laughs> old growth cedar or something <laughs> so we're pretty careful with that now yeah and then we plant and so, well, okay can i stop you right there oh, before yeah. we this is a great place to stop and ask you a couple follow-up questions from the field yeah. day video you talk about how little inputs you use so so mm. are there any inputs typically going in or are we talking about no, no just the potatoes and and no 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 um no ph management no no micronutrient management nothing like that no no <sighs> Nothing. We don't do soil testing at all. It's too depressing. Like we know we're low in lots of things. Mm -hmm. um, it just and it's not like we're gonna be like, oh look, we're low in nitrogen, so we're gonna add something with nitrogen. We just don't do that. It's just not our, it's not our game. Wow, I can't wait to ask you some more about that in a sec. But okay, <laughs> uh, you mentioned that if your if your seed potatoes are large you cut them. Do you intentionally let them scab over before you plant? That's A. And B, do you intentionally chit them before you plant? Yeah, no, we don't intentionally chip them. I do intentionally leave them I, for a few days just to dry up a bit, um, especially in a cold, cold year. Mm -hmm. um, 
it can that can make a big difference depending on the variety see glinda unfortunately are quite sensitive and um, do need to dry up a little bit before they go into the soil and it should be a bit warmer soil but then there's other varieties where you can just like you could probably crunch that you probably step on every potato and drive over it and then scoop them up and smear them into the soil and they grow just fine <laughs> not treatment unfortunately um so yeah we we cut them and leave them we just put the cut seed pieces in a in a 30 pound tote roughly and just stack them all up and leave them in the open air under the barn we do bring the seed out um sort of in the two weeks before it looks like we'll be ready to plant i like to get it out there and bring it up to temperature you know whatever whatever the temperature of the day is, just to get it um, warmer than the, the 8 or 10 degrees that it is in the root house um, before going into the ground. But no, I don't worry about chitting. We don't, it's, sometimes the things are really sprouting, as I'm sure you noticed, and I've really just had to harden my heart and start stop worrying about knocking off sprouts when we plant, because that's just what happens. <laughs> the yeah, sprouts right. get knocked off. Um and you just you just have to carry on. They'll sprout again. Potatoes are amazing. They really do just want to grow, and you just need to get them in the ground, and they'll figure it out. Okay. From and, there. And I interrupted you before, so so mm. now it's time to plant. You've got a two-row planter, you said. Mm. Yeah, we have a, a two-row planter. It's a cup planter, so it you fill the hopper, and then the cups are on a belt that go around and pick up a seed piece and bring it down the chute and drop it in the soil. And you can adjust the the height of the hill and the steepness of the hill with the discs, the covering discs and the depth. Um, and you can adjust the how far apart the potatoes are being planted. So there's lots of fiddling. And what what, <laughs> what, what do you favor on your farm for spacing? Well, it sort of depends on the variety with the fingerlings. I like to give quite a bit more room because they really do spread out. Um, with warba, it's, you know, six inches. It's just like a ribbon of seed behind the planter going in. Um, but they're, they're going to come, they're going to be dug quite early, so they don't need as much space to flourish. Sequinda standard is about nine inches on our farm. I think lots of people do 12 inches. We're pretty happy with nine. Uh, the russets are a foot, 12 inches probably. And then what so about inter, inter row spacing? Is that just set up for whatever cultivation equipment you have? Yeah. Three foot, three foot centers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good for, for our setup. What's your, what's your weed tolerance or weed management philosophy? Is it like you're trying to have a spotless field or where do you, where do you and your dad and your, everyone else? Yeah. We, well, the cultivation kind of takes care of the weeds, like this big, um, forming these big hills, it certainly obliterates that first, the first few blooms really of weeds. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the, and it seems to happen at a time when those potatoes are just about ready to really push out. And so if you, when you've got it done right, they, they sprout like shortly after doing that big hill, they seem to really go through those last few inches quite quickly and the weed seeds have just been like they don't know which way's up mm -hmm. they've just been completely turned around um our weed pressure and to back up a little bit is really relieved by this 
um, all the mowing we do in the off years. Like we mow that cover crop four or five times in the summer. So it's, weeds don't have much of a chance to set seed. The first year, there's a lot of weeds that come up after after potatoes. But by the time that it's time for potatoes again, like you don't have any of those fresh weeds. Um, so they're, they're, they've sort of given up at that point. And then if you can get the potatoes to, if they're doing well, they'll just grow and, and smother everything else out. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. is it, is it acceptable to you to jump now towards harvest or am I, am I rushing you? Oh yeah. Okay, great. So I, I just wondering yeah. with harvest, if there's any, anything worth noting, any, any advice you would pass on or, or insights, or is it fairly straightforward? I'm not much, I'm, I'm really not a potato grower at scale, so I don't, I don't have a sense. Yeah. Well, I think that the, the requirement that we cut top so early, was actually a really in the long run, it's actually been a good thing because we don't mind getting the crop out early. And I think that's a secret to growing clean potatoes organically is to not try to push it and not try to get big, a big, huge yield. Um, if you want clean looking potatoes, you should get them out of the ground before they get not clean anymore. And what, what, um, what are you avoiding primarily? Like what, what, what makes them um, like, what, what are the, what are the culprits of if you leave them into, oh, what are the main, main primary suspects? Oh, so many things. <laughs> Wireworm and flea beetle are the are the sort of worst things. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's all kinds of other disfigurements that happen when you leave them in. Like they get growth cracks and they, depending on the variety, they get really knobbly. They can develop hollow heart, um, which is a big hollow heart of the potato. Um, they get rhizop. Um, they get, I don't, I mean, they just can look, Absolutely. They can go from looking perfect one week to the very next week, just looking like trash. Mm. It's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. Can, um, you, can, can a grower just on the, on the note of giving that advice, you know, consider yeah. not, I mean, I know you probably don't think of it this way. I'm, I'm, I'm half joking, but d- don't get too greedy, you know, like get them out in time. Mm. If you really want those clean potatoes, because you'll be paid for it in, in cleaner potatoes that are easier to sell at a higher price. Can you, mm-hmm. can you, but, but in terms of giving up some yield, can you counteract that by intentionally planting your potatoes closer together or do you invite other problems when you do that? Yeah, I think you have to experiment on your operation and, and, and your, everybody's soil is different. Um, yeah, I, it is a, it is a sort of toss up because in the winter you can actually, like July calls are January 1st. Like they look fabulous in January <laughs> because nobody's got fresh potatoes in January and everybody knows inside they're just fine. You just have to get your, get over yourself and, and they have all the taste. They just don't have any of the look. Mm-hmm. So um, it can be a little bit of a, a juggle. It's one of those farming dilemmas at a sort of list of 500 million farming dilemmas that you face every season. Um, yeah, do you get them out early and not have much of a crop? And, you know, it might be too early in the summer. Maybe it's too hot and they're going to have some problem in storage because they're going in too hot. Or do you get them out perfect and take them to market and charge $4 a pound and never think about it again? But, I mean, in January you can take them to market and, if you have an 
you know, double the crop, he's pretty much going to make double the money. So, yeah, it's hard. It's way more, um, It's sometimes it just comes down to, like, are my nerves going to be shot? Yes, then let's get them out of the ground. Because I don't, I find it hard to, so I don't like standing behind selling potatoes that don't look good. It, yeah. It's a, that's a, for sure in the summer months, that's a really tough sell. In the, in January, no problem. Like, I'm like, yeah, you need to get these potatoes. They're just fine. You can just boil them whole. Like, don't peel them first. Boil them first and then pull the peel off. And it'll just come off in like a papery layer and pull out all the blemishes and you've got perfect potatoes. So I, like, force people to get them. No problem. <laughs> but in the summer, like, oh, no, these got to be perfect. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. It's an, it's an unfortunate mm-hmm. reality of, of customer psychology. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so Anna, can we, can we briefly touch on seed potato production? What is it? Because, you know, you've mentioned that you, you do that now and I'm wondering what does it take to re to, to, to have certified seed? And is it something you would recommend to certain farms to try and consider for, for their economics? Um, yeah, I think it, I don't think an individual farm Unless you're an enormous grower, I don't think, I think there are individual farms in Alberta and in the States and stuff that have their own seed potato program. Um, but in, in my case, I don't think we, I don't think we'd do it if it was just us. Um, Cause you do need to be able to produce tissue culture that's virus free. And you pretty much have to do that in a, um, in a sterile growing facility of some sort. So you need to, you need to have a, a hood that you can work under, like a laminar airflow hood that is sterile and you need to have Bunsen burners and to keep your tools clean and you need to have an autoclave to sterilize your equipment. You need to have a grow room where you can grow these little plants that are in agar. Um, yeah, so it's a it's it would be quite an investment, I think. Um, right, and so this is something you were able to do and embrace just by virtue of being in this seed potato powerhouse region of, yeah, of North America. Exactly. And before we move on from potato production, I just want to know. I guess I want to ask you um, your personal favorite variety, and also a variety that you would recommend for its versatility and hardiness as far as like a farmer who who just wants to to try a potato that that they can be that is pretty reliable to grow um okay well my favorite variety has got to be the sieglinda also known as german butter and i like it because it is just such an easy sell they i've never gone wrong recommending them to customers i never say oh you should try this potato and somebody comes back like oh they were okay but you know i'm into something else so sieglinda would be the number one potato and it's probably I don't know, I think we're up to at least 75% of our crop, maybe mm. maybe that's high, but it's a lot, a third of our crop, say, is sequenda. In terms of, like, which potato I reach for, um, the Yukon Gold is nice, but I don't recommend it necessarily in an organic operation. I think they were developed for a conventional operation, like the conventional Yukon gold I see are just massive, big plants and just gourd, huge set of potatoes underneath. And they need like NPK and they need some herbicide support. And I don't know what all. And then they just flourish. 
my Yukongol, they're like anemic, <laughs> awful looking plants <laughs> with like two or three potatoes underneath. And if I can get large ones, I'm just thrilled to bits, but it, it can't be counted upon. Um, but they're a lovely tasting potato. I've got this new favorite potato called red Lasota. It's red, as the name suggests. <laughs> um, and it's a smooth potato. I really like that. And it's, it, it's, for the, I've grown it for three years now, and every year it's the first one up, and which is really saying something because there's a lot of competition in that department. And mm-hmm. every year it's the first one up, and it like immediately like covers the dirt with big, nice big leaves, which is important for shielding out the weeds and everything. And then it just grows bigger and bigger and bigger and sets a beautiful potato under there and tons of them, and they're faster than the warba one or two years they've been faster than warba which is also really saying something and they're so tasty like sweet smooth and this is called this is called red lasota red lasota yeah Yeah. l-a-s-o-d-a yeah so i'm just i think that's my favorite one right now just from a growing perspective and an eating like the all-arounder that would be the one. Okay. And uh, I know it's dangerous to divorce uh, uh, facts like this from their context, but we're going to divorce <laughs> facts from context. What Let's is, <laughs> what is, I just want to know, I want to give people a sense of like at the Vancouver farmers markets, when you have beautiful blemish free potatoes at the right time of year, what's the highest price you can command per pound? Uh, well, for the Larat fingerling, I go to $4 a pound. Yeah. Um, and for everything else is $3 a pound. The this year they were charging three fifty a pound at market in Vancouver for potatoes, and I've never done that. And when we came to Van- when we came to the winter market this year, some of the growers were still at three fifty, and I thought about it and I even wrote it on a sign, and then I just I couldn't do it. So three dollars is my apparently the ceiling for me at market. The Helmer ceiling we call it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'd let's, love to charge more of it. Let's move on then to to this this very interesting rotation on your farm. Okay, so that concludes part one of my conversation with Anna Helmer. You can check out part two in the next episode released for the Organic BC podcast. One thing a lot of farmers are feeling lately is stress about extreme weather events that have become increasingly common the last number of years. For this season of the podcast, I called up some of my colleagues around the province to talk about how extreme weather has affected their farm and how they are attempting to adapt to what's starting to feel something like a new normal. This episode, we're going to speak to this guy. My name is Jerome Gagné, and my farm name is Medley Organics. Uh, I'm a small farm in Summerland specializing in tasty fruits and vegetables supplying the better restaurants of the Okanagan and the Penticton Farmer's Market. Um, When you think about the last five plus years, Jerome, um, to what extent has your farm and farm production been impacted by extreme weather? Um, It's actually quite a bit. Over the last three years especially, I think the main issue is predictability. It's really hard to know what's going to work because, you know, one year we're going to have a horrible early spring like last year it was cold into june and july 
And then the year before, we had the heat wave at the same time, which, you know, damaged some crops. And then last year in, in November, winter arrived a month early. So I it's it's stressful. It's difficult. For me, it's not absolutely horrible because I grow a lot of crops. There's 40, you know, different crops I grow. And even on a regular year, maybe 10 years ago when I started the business, um, some crops do well, some crops do badly. That's just normal. Now it's some crops do better because it's a hotter summer, but some crops do poorly because it's a colder spring. Um, it's, it's, it's obviously it's stressful because there's, there's no way of predicting that the snow is going to melt before April 1st. And there's no way of predicting if, like two years ago, it was 25 on the 1st of December. So you've touched on this a little bit, but can you, I'll, I'll ask in case there's other things you can think of, in what ways have you changed or adapted your production to incorporate these uncertainties? I grow more varieties. That's one thing. Um, I grow, I've moved away from buying seeds exclusively from companies that are far away. I try to buy seeds that are from local-ish growers so that I know those varieties will grow in my environment uh, because those things change. It's it's changing a lot. Um, and yeah, I do grow, way, like instead of growing three varieties or two varieties of fennel, I'll grow four varieties and six varieties of kohlrabi and then same with peppers i'll grow more varieties of everything so that it's you know i'm sure something will work what if what if anything would you like to see your government doing to to help farmers adjust and adapt to extreme weather i don't know jordan that one that one i i really don't know that the government is going to help us uh, might it might be pessimistic on my part, but I I really wish they'd put their energy into you know fixing bigger problems than helping farmers. Yes, giving us money would be great, but in the end, that doesn't fix the problem. It's just it's just a band aid. Like, yeah, they should they should do they should do bigger and more more uh, things to to fix the environment instead of. Try, trying to give money to the people who are affected by it. Okay, that's part one of my conversation with Anna Helmer. I hope you'll check out part two. This episode was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Special thanks to Matt Eckel for providing the theme music you're hearing right now, as well as the segment transitions. Time to say goodbye. Goodbye.